This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I began this journey of a podcast about four and a half years ago when I decided to extend the walls of my practice to several groups, to those of you who might already be in therapy and be very interested in emotional and psychological issues, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with depression or anxiety or some other kind of mental illness or as they're now calling it, a psychoneuroimmunological illness. <laughs> I think that's great. Stop calling it mental only. But to also a third group, those of you who'd never darken the door of a therapist or don't think you would, but have enough curiosity to listen to what someone like me might have to say. So thank you all for being here, and welcome again to Self Work. As many of you know, I was a professional singer when I began this journey to become a therapist and a psychologist. The only thing I knew about therapy back then was that I had lots of it and I'd never laid down on a couch. And it had been extremely helpful many times. So I decided I want to go for it and try to become a therapist. That was in 1984. I didn't even have a psychology degree, mind you. So I first thought I wanted to be a music therapist, but had the revelation after interning in a psych hospital that no, I wanted the full experience of being a psychologist. I ended getting my degree in 1992 and was licensed in 93. Nine years was a long time, and I thought I'd learned a lot in those nine years. But my learning actually started when I began seeing patients all on my own. No supervision, just me and the patients. And I'll tell you what, the learning curve continues every day. I learn more from every interaction, from every email, from every session. From every comment on Facebook, whatever, I keep on learning. But I thought you might be interested in knowing just what I have learned along the way, or at least what I can pinpoint. So in this episode sponsored by BetterHelp, here are 10 things that I hope you're experiencing in therapy if you've sought therapy, and that might be helpful for any of you who are considering therapy to think about before you walk through the door, perhaps what you can expect from your therapists. I've made mistakes for sure, and I hope I've apologized for those. But these 10 things, these things I've learned, have not only made me a better therapist, but I hope a better person. The listener email is from a woman whose mother sends her what the listener calls unfiltered critical comments about her parenting. She's caught between wanting to love her mom, but not being willing to receive the non-asked-for critical feedback. It's a tough place to be, but I hope I have an idea that can help her. So sit back and relax or drive wherever you're headed or if you're running, take a big breath right now as we dive into things that I've learned as a therapist. I was trying to remember just how many times I went to therapy with different therapists. I counted, and there were 10 different therapists in a two-decade period of time. Some were marital or couples counselors. Most were individual. One was awful, two were outstanding, and the others were helpful. I get the question a lot from self-work listeners, but how do I choose a therapist? 
My very first podcast, like 001, featured a little ebook that I wrote when I first started blogging called Seven Commandments of Good Therapy. It featured the things you need to look for, some very pragmatic things like a good contract and an understanding and identification of payment procedures to ones more relational, what you should expect in a relationship, like you feeling heard and valued, like your therapist remembering things you confided, or if for some reason they didn't, they say they'd forgotten or couldn't quite remember certain details. But I hear some pretty awful things about former therapists. Some talk about themselves all the time. Some are chronically late to sessions. There are unexpected charges. They forget important facts about your life, even going to sleep in session. (laughs) I've yawned a few times. Sure, we're all human, but going to sleep, it's just totally unacceptable. And you know, you can get that book for free if you subscribe to my website which is drmargaretrutherford.com, but you also can listen to the number one episode. So I sat down today to write about what are the things that I've incorporated into my own style of therapy, into how I approach individuals or couples that have been influenced either by my own therapeutic experiences or simply what I've learned along the way as a therapist. So I first made a list of what I most value or think is helpful to my patients that I actually try to do, These things make therapy different than your friendships and your family relationships. It's not that these things don't happen in those relationships, but a therapist tries to make therapy the safest place possible for someone to grow and heal, grieve, and reach insights that lead to change and compassion for self. The list was a very interesting thing for me to do, actually, and they aren't in any particular order, but are listed simply in how they came to me. As soon as this episode is over, I'll probably think of some others, But I suppose one of the most important things I've learned through therapy is that imperfection is normal. You don't always have to be absolutely right or sure. So, let's get started. Here's number one. I've learned to wait. I've learned the importance of timing. Perhaps you can see someone avoiding or suppressing, but you don't become impatient at what they don't seem to be able to see or they're guarded against. We all have the experience of watching friends and loved ones, people we really care about, Keep on doing things that are self-destructive or a part of an entrenched habit that's harmful, or they stop doing things that have been helpful. It's not that a therapist sits and simply watches some catastrophe unfold. No, if there's danger, then it becomes your job not to wait, to directly point it out and to alert family if there's immediate danger. But in more normal situations, waiting, offering space, not having your own agenda or timeline, makes therapy a different kind of relationship. In fact, if I make a specific recommendation, I'll frequently say to my clients now, this isn't school, this is a recommendation, not a required assignment. I know in therapy myself, I learned just as much from what I wasn't ready to do as what I was ready to do. It helped me become more aware of my own fears, my vulnerabilities. It's kind of like when I work out with a trainer. Sometimes I have to say, You know, I tried that, but I can't do it. I'm not strong enough or I lose my balance. Can we modify it, whatever it is, so I can take a smaller step? We wait, take a smaller step, and then see where that leads you. Here's number two. I remember in my 20s telling my therapist at the time that I think I felt like two different people sometimes, and I very naively wondered, and then said it out loud, if I had multiple personalities, or DID as they call it now, dissociative identity disorder, And DID is a severe mental illness caused from horrible trauma, and I didn't have any of that. She must have wanted to start laughing at my huge naivete. 
but she didn't scorn me or say something like, how could you be that silly? I was looking for answers for why I sometimes didn't understand my own behavior. I wasn't using the right language, but that was my reality. So even though her more learned perspective gave her knowledge that I didn't have, she hung in there and tried to understand my perspective, to understand things through my eyes so I could grow and learn and change. She was kind. That's empathy. You don't scorn a three-year-old for believing that they're going to be able to touch the clouds when they get taller. That's their perspective. And what I was trying to explain was that I didn't understand my own behavior and the therapist approached with empathy. And isn't it wonderful if you try to see the world through that child's eyes? This is an extremely important skill when as a therapist, you don't share culturally or ethnically or racially the same background as your client. You have to try to see things from their perspective and not assume yours will work. So empathy is number two. And realizing that your experience is different. Maybe you know more, but maybe you know less. And so understanding and having empathy is very important. Here's number three. Being a therapist has definitely made me aware that there's far more about life that I don't know than what I think I do. And what I've learned is that curiosity keeps me open. Sometimes I'm simply wrong because I don't know enough. So I'll often use the word wonder with my patients. Like, I wonder if you could be thinking or feeling or whatever, angry, for example. Or or I'd ask, could you be feeling anger? Rather than, I think you're feeling angry. You can hear the difference. I'm staying curious. I want to know what their experience is. It leaves the conversation open. Or sometimes I'll even very genuinely say, You know, I want to see how this sounds as I say it, and then let's talk about it because I don't really know what it's going to sound like. I'm opening the door for discussion. I'm not saying that I know something is absolutely true. Maybe my wonderings are accurate, but maybe they're not. What I want them to do is to lead the conversation into a place where it is helpful. I think this can be, of course, very helpful in any relationship you're in to stay curious rather than to believe you're right. Number four, I've learned when to listen to my gut. When I say listen, that's what I mean. Not trust, no matter what. There are certain things I feel in my gut that I trust a fair amount because I've had lots of experience in that area. But we all have blind spots. The best any therapist or any person can do is to try to recognize those spots. Talking with other therapists I respect can help me see that. But something I do have a lot of experience with is abuse and trauma, and I can pick up on when someone's being abused and yet they're not saying so. I'm pretty good at sensing that. Maybe because I did the same thing in therapy years ago, I wasn't open about the abuse, and so I can pick up on body language and things like that. There are certainly times that I wish that I'd listened to my gut when I didn't, and I haven't seen something developing that needed to be seen, or at least could have been. What I've also learned is people can lie really well or they can simply not be ready to be more forthcoming. Sometimes I can tell the difference. Sometimes I can't. So basically, number four is, when do you listen to your gut? And when do you question your gut? Here's number five. My son used to say that the best thing about having a psychologist for a mom was that I'd offer him mental health days when I could see that he needed one, or as he got older, he told me he did. So I've also learned to do that for myself. 
I take a mental health day every now and then. And you can do it for yourself if you financially can. But if you can't financially, even challenge that a little. Maybe it's not a day, it's an evening. Or maybe you get up early in the morning when no one else is up and have a little time to be with you. It's a basic recognition that you can't get water out of a vessel that's empty. So just take enough time for you. Before we hear my other five things, here's a message from BetterHelp. And maybe trying some sessions with BetterHelp might be your own version of taking time for you. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone. And I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast. Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. TryBetterHelp.com slash selfwork. That's TryBetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, Maybe BetterHelp is your next step. Here comes number six. In therapy one time, again, some of these are based on what I learned from working with other therapists. I was shaming myself big time for getting angry about something and then doing something I regretted. I must have been pouring the shame on pretty heavy because my very mild-mannered, soft-spoken therapist revealed to me that she'd come close to breaking a plate over her also mild-mannered husband's head one time. I started laughing. I've never forgotten. I knew he was mild-mannered because she'd sent me to him for hypnosis. Now that was helpful sharing. But not all therapist sharing is helpful. Just like no one likes for someone to butt in and make something you're saying as about them, right? That's self-centered. I've learned that there are times, and therapy sessions are those times, when sharing about yourself should be at a minimum, and only when it's truly helpful. Now, the longer I have seen people, if I see people for several years, for example, they find more things out about me because they know I'm going on vacation or they've learned my patterns. But still, that boundary between what you share and what you don't is very important to maintain. And you should know that as a client yourself, your therapist needs to only share about themselves when helpful. 
Number seven, it's hard for me to remember what my first therapy sessions were like, the ones where I was the therapist. I remember mimicking my own therapist, saying things she said to me, for example, if it fit. But slowly I became much more like me, the me outside of my therapeutic role, and that felt very good. You didn't get one Margaret at the grocery store and another sitting across from you in the office. This awareness became even more important when we moved away from Dallas to a much smaller town. But it's also been a gift. Not to feel like I put on a persona as a therapist. That's just yuck. I wouldn't want to live that way. I don't care who I was or what I did. I wouldn't want to be one way at work and then a whole other way in my personal life. In fact, sometimes I know when I'm working with a lawyer, they act like a lawyer in their own relationship, and it's not helpful. I'll never forget a therapist I had here in Fable who had a huge poster of Bruce Springsteen in his waiting room, and I love that. That's just him. And I've also tried to make my own office comfortable and casual, but guess what? It looks a lot like my home. And I probably listen to my friends' problems a lot like I listen to anyone's. The difference, obviously, is they know what my own struggles are as well. But what I learned was to be me, just to be Margaret all the time. Number eight, I've learned to think outside the box and be creative when asking patients to take risks. Not the same old, same old, I guess. And sometimes I even like to suggest assignments that are meant to insert humor. Like if I'm working with a couple, for example, I'll ask them to have a water pistol fight. Or I ask an individual patient to risk a little, like stand by some weird fruit at the store and ask someone buying it how to prepare it. Something to get them out of the same old routines, like they go to the grocery store and they never speak to a soul. Here's an example of what a therapist asked me to do. I think you'll find this amusing. I had a therapist one time. It was the mild-mannered husband of the example beforehand. He handed me a baby doll at the end of the session, and it was incredibly lifelike. I was really puzzled, and I asked him what I was supposed to do with it. Treat it like you wish you'd been treated as a child, is what he said. I sheepishly said okay and walked through the waiting room holding this doll. Well, I was meeting a friend for lunch, and so I took the doll into the restaurant with me, holding it like you'd hold a baby. It looked so real, the waitstaff asked me if I'd like an infant seat, and I said yes. A couple of people even stopped by the table and kind of goo-gooed at the doll, and I, I didn't let on. I felt a little nuts, but, you know, so what? After lunch, I threw the baby doll into the back of my Mustang and didn't think about it until the next session when I got it out and went inside. So, of course, he asked me what I'd done with the doll all week, and I promptly told him I'd basically had a little fun and then ignored it. So he said, So you treated the doll just like you wished your mother had treated you. You wished she'd had a little fun with you, but you basically wished that she had let you lead your own life. I was astounded. He was so right. It was kind of a wacky way to experience that, but sometimes wacky is good, and I've never forgotten it. So I try and think of little things like that, things that can be very powerful and sometimes funny. Because laughter is so important in healing. Number nine may actually be one of the most important things that therapy offers. And learning how to do it has been mm, very, very meaningful. What is it? You learn how to hold a safe space for someone. You let them unwind, even feel unhinged. And then you guide them into a safer space. It's a huge part of being a therapist. This memory came back to me as I was writing this that I had totally forgotten. I remember actually having a panic attack in my therapist's office. 
I'd never felt like I could allow that. It was far too vulnerable. But I'd felt it coming on, and where before I would have excused myself and walked out of the session, or I'd gotten one of my little pills out and swallowed it, instead I let it be. He was holding such a safe space for me. I could do that. I could let this part of me that I was so ashamed of be seen up close and personal. What a gift to give someone. Now, a therapist has to be very emotionally attuned to someone for them to feel that safety. Your patient has to know that you're right there with them. Kind of like, you know, that exercise we see, or maybe you've done, where you stand with your back to a group of people, and then you fall, and you trust that they're going to catch you. It's very much like that. You don't feel what they're feeling. That's not what attunement means. But you're ready to hold them metaphorically and sometimes literally as they devolve. It's called holding a safe space. Being emotionally attuned to someone, I learned how to do. But the hardest one for me was to be attuned when they were very angry. At first, I had trouble with holding a safe space for anger. Anger hadn't been a part of my own family dynamics, and I didn't have a lot of capacity to simply be with someone when they were yelling or very angry. In fact, in my early marriages, I know I got terribly defensive when anger was pointed at me, and I fought back hard. But I learned something very important for me as a person and for me as a therapist, that you can be in the presence of anger and remain still yourself and keep listening. As a therapist, you learn how to hold a safe space for grief, for fear, for anger, even for feelings of self-destructiveness if they are not imminent. And that safe space can be so powerful. And here's the last one. You never want to forget you're hearing one side of an issue. As a therapist, it's very important to remember that while it's your job to support, gentle confrontation can also be necessary if you begin to realize that the puzzle pieces don't fit together necessarily the way your client is explaining them. It's not truly helpful to simply agree with everything they say, but you also need to gain their trust before you question how they're perceiving things. Depression, anxiety, mental and emotional stress, all of the above can cause someone to not see things clearly perhaps to perceive things more negatively. It's not that the therapist holds the truth. That's not it. But when the therapist's perspective or my perspective was different from my patients, I learned how to work together, sharing and wondering with them how their depression might be skewing their view. And that for them could be a very vital conversation to have because if I'm not getting it, if I'm not understanding it, no one in the world is either. So gentle confrontation is a needed skill and one I had to learn. This can be especially true in the case of addictive behaviors, as denial of the problem as a problem can often be huge. So that's the 10 things that I could think of today. I'm sure I'll think of more later, maybe even quote-unquote better ones. But as self-acceptance and humility have also been tried on for size these past 28 years, I'll go with this 10 and hope they were helpful to hear as things that you can expect in your own therapy and maybe grow from yourself. The listener email today is from a 50-something daughter whose mother justifies her being not only intrusive but critical. You don't get to say what I can or can't say is her mother's message. So what would you do? Hi, my name is Robin. My mom sent me a text in response to my own frustrations with my adult children. I was just sharing with her. Her response was, I don't get to choose how my support 
is delivered to me or what form it comes in. And I disagree with that. She thinks it's okay to say whatever she wants to me, whether it's hurtful, um, unfiltered, and this happens all the time. I can't criticize her or bring anything up with her. If I do, she will throw the same issues from the past from 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, and it's the same rhetoric each time. She cannot accept criticism, but she can dish it out. And I don't know how to process all of this and what to say to her in in response. I want to love my mom. I'm 55. She's 72. I want to love her, but she's just, I, and I do love her, but she's very difficult to deal with. And she's really put a lot of many wedges between our family members and caused a lot of pain. And I'm a very sensitive person and this has really affected me. So this listener is asking, what do you do when you try to set a boundary? You make a reasonable request that is scorned or feel disrespected in a relationship with someone you want to love, but they're insisting that the problem is your problem. This listener wants to have a loving relationship with her mom, but also wants her mom to respect that either she cannot tolerate what her mom has to say because she's a little too sensitive, which maybe she is, but also she's asked her not to do it. She's asked her to respect her boundaries And that could have nothing to do with sensitivity, but everything to do with understanding your words can have a painful impact, and you need to care about that. The listener says, I want to love my mom, but she doesn't love this behavior of her mom's and her justification for it. This is a tough spot, certainly. Her mother seems intent on doing what she wants to do, and may even be aware that her daughter really wants a relationship and is taking advantage of that fact. Or she could just not be a very nice person who doesn't particularly care whether others are hurt or not. So here's my idea. And it's based on the basic idea that in a weird way, her mother may be reinforced for her behavior because it does upset this listener. The second thing, if someone doesn't suffer natural consequences for their behavior, it's not likely to stop. So my message to this listener I think you can offer love to your mom while at the same time telling her you won't respond to her texts or emails about your kids, that your children will simply not be a topic of conversation. So if she brings it up during a conversation, you politely but suddenly end it. You don't yell or cry or give her emotional input. You simply cut her off. Mom, you know the rules. I don't talk about the kids with you. Talk next week or whenever and you get off the phone. You stop texting. There have to be consequences, and you removing yourself from the situation and your relationship with her temporarily is the consequence. But you have to take your own emotions out of it. It would be one thing if you were asking her opinion, but you're not. So I hope that's helpful. It's again about setting a boundary and sticking to it without an emotional response. Thank you all for being here today on self-work. It means so much to me that you're here, and it means so much to me that so many of you are leaving ratings and reviews on Amazon for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression. That book is for anyone who knows that control is paramount in your life because you do not want anyone to see your vulnerabilities, and you've created this perfect-looking persona, maybe not perfect-looking for you. But anyone knowing you would say, oh yeah, she's got the perfect life, when really it is far from perfect. 
And I've got 60 exercises in the book to help you out of that place because it's terribly lonely and can even become deadly. I'd love for you to leave a review or a rating also on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to self-work. People do judge these things by how many ratings did she get or what's the oldest rating she's gotten or the oldest review because it gives them a sense of why people listen. And I read them and it means so much to me as well, even constructive criticism. Please email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. And if you subscribe there, you'll get a weekly newsletter from me giving you some of the current things I'm involved in, maybe seminars I'm giving or like I participated in one this weekend that was amazing. And it was in my newsletter. I was just one of five or six speakers and I couldn't believe the other speakers were truly motivational. I stayed the whole time. So subscribe at drmargaretrutherford.com. And like I said in the intro, you'll also get my free ebook about the seven commandments of good therapy. I've got a Facebook closed group that you're welcome to join. I'd love to have you at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And I'm also over on Instagram and having fun there. I've made so many friends there. Instagram is just a very friendly place. I really like it. So again, thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed Jenny Lawson's episode last week. I found her fascinating and so genuine. So I hope you enjoyed that. Or if you didn't, give it a listen. She's an incredible writer and speaker about depression and advocate for mental health. And she's funny. (laughs) Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.